Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, December 1st, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top headlines. San Francisco police get approved to use lethal robots. Pentagon claims China will quadruple its nuclear warheads. The EU proposes a special court for Russian war crimes and using frozen assets for Ukraine. The U.S. Senate passes a bill protecting same-sex marriage. New York City will involuntarily hospitalize the mentally ill. Hakeem Jeffries will succeed Pelosi as Democratic House leader. The Oath Keepers founder is convicted of seditious conspiracy. Four are killed by a suicide bomb targeting a Pakistan polio campaign. An Alzheimer's drug slows cognitive decline but may have killed people. And the French baguette controversially makes UNESCO's cultural heritage list. In our first story, San Francisco Police Department is approved to use lethal robots. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Fortune, Fox News, NPR Online News, and Axios. On Tuesday, San Francisco, California officials voted to give police the ability to use remote-controlled and potentially lethal robots in emergency situations. Following an intense two-hour debate, officials voted 8-3 to three in favor of the robots, despite concerns raised by civil rights and police watch groups. The San Francisco Police Department stated that they don't utilize pre-armed robots and have no intention to arm robots with guns. However, the SFPD could potentially utilize robots armed with explosives. Only a limited number of high-ranking officers will be authorized to use the robots. Their use will only be permitted after alternative forces of de-escalation tactics to subdue a suspect have failed. The first time a robot was used for deadly force by law enforcement was 2016. At that time, the Dallas Police Department used a bomb disposal robot with an explosive device to kill a suspect who had shot dead five police officers. San Francisco's Board of Supervisors can annually accept or reject rules around the SFPD's use of military-style weapons, which currently includes 12 robots for tasks like gaining situational awareness, defusing bombs, or supporting hostage negotiations. Thank you, Melissa, for laying out the facts on that story. On this show, we separate the facts from the narrative spin. And here are two narrative spins off of this story. The first, Narrative A, is brought to us by Truth About Guns. Despite the hysterical label, Killer Robots, the SFPD's use of the robots in the field will only occur when the risk of loss of life to police officers or civilians outweighs any other force option available to the department. The robots don't have guns, and their use of explosives is confined to breaching fortified structures or disorienting violent subjects. Robots can be used correctly with the right protocols. And Narrative B is provided by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. As has been the case with other police militarization efforts, deploying explosive-armed robots is a slippery slope toward using them in everyday practice. Though officials claim robots will only be used for dire situations, over time, they could be used to monitor every protest and every street corner. This is dystopian and dangerous. Every time I buy my kid a remote control car, it breaks within five minutes, if not a day later. 
So I, I see some problems here. I think as, as long as they keep the batteries charged up, they should be okay. And they need to just make sure that those robots stay on their prime directive. Maybe we need to get some mustaches on these robots just to make them a little more friendly to people on the streets, you know? If we, if, maybe if we, like, if they stack three robots on top of each other and put, a, like, a trench coat <laughs> on them and, like, a fedora hat. Yeah, well, then they could, you know, they could take them out of the dire situations where everything else has been utilized and just put them on the street, right? Just get, get a, the trench coat, stack them on top of each other, teach them some catchy phrases. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. Our next story is a report from the Pentagon that China will quadruple their nuclear warheads by 2035. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Associated Press, Fox News, Economic Times, and CNN. According to a report released by the Pentagon on Tuesday, China is on pace to grow its nuclear warhead arsenal from 400 to 105,000 by 2035. The near quadrupling of its nuclear bombs exceeds the U.S.'s previous prediction of 706 years and around 1,000 by 2030. The report added that Beijing is looking to complete the, quote, great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation by 2049, including building up its military to invade Taiwan by 2027 and achieving a, quote, basically complete modernization of its armed forces by 2035. It only analyzed China's 2021 activities, meaning the results of the report's assessment don't account for any impacts Russia's invasion of Ukraine may have had on the CCP's military goals. While China has observed the world's reaction to Russian threats, the U.S. continues to monitor China-Russian joint military exercises. The publication further stated that China also conducted 135 ballistic missile tests in 2021, which is more than the rest of the world combined. At a press briefing on the report, a senior defense official detailed China's test of a hypersonic missile that flew around the globe before hitting its target in July 2021. The report comes two weeks after President Joe Biden, who commands a nuclear arsenal of 3,750 active warheads, met with President Xi Jinping at the G20 summit in Indonesia, where he objected to China's alleging, quote, coercive and increasingly aggressive actions toward Taiwan. With the Pentagon earlier this year listing China as the U.S.'s chief national security threat, the report warned Congress that China is trying to, quote, amass its national power to turn the geopolitical landscape in its favor. Thank you, Adam, for the facts on that. We've got several narrative spins on the story. We'll start with the pro-establishment narrative from Military Times. China is no longer a small player on the world stage, and it's time for the Pentagon to fully recognize that fact. Not only will China be willing and able to invade Taiwan in 2027, but its military capabilities will soon match those of the U.S. and give the CCP the power to militarily threaten nations beyond its current sphere of influence in Asia. The U.S. has many outdated weapons that need replacing if it wishes to retain its geopolitical dominance. And there's also a pro-China narrative provided by the South China Morning Post. 
China's economic and military growth should not be seen as a new Cold War with the U.S., but rather as part of a plan for global peaceful coexistence. Everything China is doing economically, socially, and technologically is learned from the U.S., and it's best if both nations publicly recognize that, instead of stoking fears of conflict. And we have our first nerd narrative on the show today from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. There is a 50% chance that at least one nuclear weapon will be detonated offensively by 2050. A big thing we're kind of, that was kind of glossed over in the facts here is the fact that the U.S. has over twice as many of those nuclear weapons that uh, China is projected to have. And, and in that narrative, it says oh, that they're all old. Yeah. <laughs> they need to be replaced. So how long have we had those? Many, many decades. Many, many decades. Replacing. How do you I go guess. about replacing a nuclear warhead. We, we, oh, I think there. You know, in Seattle, I think there's a couple shops you can drive up your tank to that to that shop and uh, and get the nuclear warhead. You know, updated. I was thinking. Up. I was thinking maybe it's more kind of like the Sears catalog type thing. You know, they go through and they see the new style of warhead. Ooh, this one looks nice. This one would match the silo. Oh yeah. Okay. You good. you just want to go for the new one and not repair. I mean, in this economy. No, we got to get Adam, no all new. We need all new nuclear warheads. I think you we got to we got to make our budget stretch. We got to we got to go to the repair shop. Really? Do you, do you want warhead repair? Do you want to be using secondhand nuclear warheads? Oh, good point. <laughs> just send them to just donate them to Goodwill. Yeah, the, but the new one, you know where the new ones come from? From Goodwill. From China. Oh, such a conflict of interests. <laughs> Turning our attention to day 280 of the Ukrainian conflict, the EU proposes a special court for Russian war crimes and using frozen assets for Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, the Inverness Courier, TASS, Ukraine Forum, and the Donetsk News Agency. Following a talk on Tuesday between G7 justice ministers, representatives of the European Commission and the International Criminal Court, or ICC, over opening a probe into allegations of Russian war crimes, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen on Wednesday proposed to set up a special court to investigate the claims. While continuing to support the work of the ICC, which already has a probe of allegations against Russia in progress, Von der Leyen said she'll work to get the broadest international support possible for the special tribunal. She further proposed using frozen Russian assets seized by the EU to pay for Ukrainian damages. Von der Leyen was quoted saying Russia and its oligarchs have to compensate Ukraine for the damage and cover the cost for rebuilding the country. We have the means to make Russia pay, she added, stating that 300 billion euros or 310 billion dollars of Russian central bank reserves were immobilized, while 19 billion euros or 20 billion dollars belonging to alleged Russian oligarchs has been seized. Meanwhile, as the second day of a NATO summit continued in Romania, Ukraine and Britain on Wednesday signed a digital trade agreement that gives Kyiv access to London's financial services and promises increased cooperation on cybersecurity and technology between the two countries. On the ground, pro-Russia separatists from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, claimed to have captured Kurdyamivka, a settlement on the outskirts of Bakhmut where fighting remains heaviest. The Institute for the Study of War, a U.S. military think tank, reported, Russian forces made marginal gains around Bakhmut on November 29th, 
but Russian forces remain unlikely to have advanced at the tempo that Russian sources claimed. According to Ukrainian officials, five civilians were killed and 15 were injured in Donetsk in the last 24 hours, while one civilian was killed and five others were injured in Kherson. A teenager was also reportedly killed after Russia allegedly struck a hospital in the Sumy region. One injury was reported in Kharkiv and one in Dnipropetrovsk. Meanwhile, in Ukrainian attacks, DPR officials said six civilians were injured over the past day. An oil depot in the Russian region of Beryansk, which borders Ukraine, was also reportedly on fire on Wednesday. Melissa, thank you for the facts on the Ukrainian update. We've got a few spins here. The first is an anti-Russia narrative, and it's provided by Associated Press. Since Putin launched his invasion on February 24th, his forces have committed a number of atrocities in Bucha, Maripol, and elsewhere. The tribunal will help ensure justice is delivered for these war crimes. And the pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. The West continues to fabricate and exaggerate Russia's actions while ignoring the very real crimes committed by Kiev. However, Russia will continue to highlight these atrocities to the international community. And our nerd narrative on this story says there's a 40% chance that Vladimir Putin will be charged with war crimes by the International Criminal Court before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Our next story turns its attention to U.S. Congress, where the U.S. Senate has passed a bill protecting same-sex marriage. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Fox News, Politico, Daily Mail, Reuters, and Al Jazeera. On Tuesday, the U.S. Senate voted 61 to 36 to pass the Respect for Marriage Act, a bipartisan bill to protect same-sex and interracial marriage at a federal level. Although the bill could have been brought to the floor in September, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said its supporters took a calculated risk in holding off, as they believed more bipartisan support could be reached. The strategy was seemingly successful, as the bill sourced the minimum of 10 GOP votes in the Senate needed to avoid a filibuster. It must now pass through the House and be signed by President Biden to become law, which would repeal the Defense of Marriage Act passed in 1996. Although the legislation will not force states to conduct same-sex marriages, it requires all 50 states to recognize same-sex and interracial marriages that are performed in any other state. The legislation is reportedly intended to act as a backstop in case the Supreme Court acts against same-sex marriage. It was prompted by fears that the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade could precede a reversal of other landmark cases, such as the 2015 decision to legalize same-sex marriage nationwide. According to a Gallup poll taken in 2021, support for same-sex marriage hit a record high of 70% among Americans, and for the first time, it was supported by a majority of Republicans at 55%. Thanks, Adam, for the facts. There are several spins on this story. And the first spin is the Democratic narrative coming from the Washington Post. This is a victory for LGBTQ plus rights, and the bipartisan support for the bill in the Senate shows how far social issues have progressed in today's America. However, LGBTQ plus minorities continue to face prejudice, and the left cannot lose sight of the battles that still need fighting. And the Republican narrative is provided by Daily Wire. This bill has been passed despite majority opposition from Republican lawmakers, 
over the language of the legislation that infringes on religious freedoms and will pave the way to increased federal action and litigation against religious groups. The law does nothing to actually advance LGBTQ plus freedoms, but does everything to threaten religious ones. And we've got another nerd narrative on this story saying there's a 24% chance that Lawrence v. Texas, which ruled that laws making sexual relations between consenting adult gay couples illegal violated 14th Amendment rights to liberty and privacy, will be overturned by 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Our next story turns its attention to New York, where the city is posed to involuntary hospitalize the mentally ill. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Breitbart, Washington Post, New York Times, NBC, and Wall Street Journal. On Tuesday, New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced a plan to allow first responders to involuntarily hospitalize the mentally ill if they, quote, cannot support their basic human needs to an extent that causes them harm. Given the legal uncertainty, Adams also suggested that police officers who are unsure whether they have the authority to forcefully hospitalize someone could call a hotline or video chat with a professional to, quote, get an expert opinion on what options may be available. In the face of progressive backlash, including the city's public advocate Jumaine Williams, doctors, and legal organizations, the mayor said the change would take time and that, quote, nobody should think decades of dysfunction can be changed overnight. The directive will also give first responders a step-by-step process to evaluate an individual's mental state before committing them and provide responders with enhanced training on how to assist those in mental health crisis. In an effort to combat New York City's homelessness problem, with estimates ranging from 60,000 to 80,000 people sleeping on the streets, the city will partner with the state to immediately begin training clinicians outreach workers, and first responders to, quote, ensure compassionate care. Meanwhile, as the city continues to battle crime, including multiple stabbings in the subway this year, Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul announced a plan in February to tackle issues like people sleeping on train platforms, exhibiting aggressive behavior towards passengers, and creating an, quote, unsanitary environment. Thank you, Adam, for the facts on this story. We'll start with a conservative narrative from the New York Post. Contrary to the progressive orthodoxy, allowing severely mentally ill people to roam the streets is not compassionate. It's flat out wrong. The mayor should be praised by politicians and city residents from all sides as he's finally taken action to save lives. This is also a strong first step toward the city legislature enacting concrete laws to ensure permanent public safety. And our progressive narrative is provided by the New York Civil Liberties Union. Current New York law imposes strict guidelines regarding involuntary hospitalization to protect individuals' civil liberties, and it should stay that way. Only if someone is visibly an immediate threat to themselves or others should they be forcefully taken by authorities. That's a, that's a heavy story. Because on the other side of it, what are um, the city of New York's public health psychiatric hospitals? How how prepared are they? I'm sure they're not sitting around twiddling their thumbs. That's a good point. I mean, do they have the space to accommodate all the people that seem like they're going to be flowing in there pretty soon? Right. And you're asking overstretched first responders to make these very careful, compassionate decisions on the spot. 
It'll be interesting. Yeah, it's going to be a very uh, thin line to tread. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I know it's such a problem. Hopefully some good will come from it. I see the optimistic viewpoint of it. Perhaps uh, Mayor Adams' uh, decision and his plan will be a model for other states to follow if it works. Yeah, I hope it goes well. In our next story, Hakeem Jeffries will succeed Nancy Pelosi as the Democratic House leader. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, CNN, Fox News, and The Washington Post. For the incoming 118th Congress, House Democrats elected New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries as their party leader in the lower chamber. Catherine Clark, Democrat of Massachusetts, and Pete Aguilar, Democrat of California, will join Jeffries as the newly elected House Minority Whip and Chair of the Democratic Caucus, respectively. Jeffries ran unopposed and was elected by acclamation, making him the first black leader of either party in either chamber. Representatives Steny Hoyer, Democrat of Maryland, and Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, considered opposing him, but later dropped out, with Schiff reportedly considering a Senate run. Jeffries, 52, will represent a new generation of leadership as he succeeds House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who, along with current House Minority Leader Hoyer and House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, Democrat of South Carolina, are around 30 years his senior. Though Pelosi will remain on as a rank-and-file member of the House, Jeffries said, quote, she's not going to be the type of individual that's looking over the shoulders of those leaders that she just helped to elevate. Though Republicans will have the majority after a slim win in the midterms, Jeffries will have a significant role in bipartisan legislative efforts if the GOP faces potential defectors from right-leaning members. The new leadership trio will also have to deal with the party's progressive wing, including Representative Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, with whom Jeffries has clashed due to her past endorsements of opponents to moderate Democrats. Thank you, Melissa. As you can imagine, with a political story such as this, we have a Democratic narrative, and it's provided by Huffington Post. Not only will Jeffries enter his historic role at the helm of a unified party, but also he'll enjoy a 118th Congress facing only a slim opposition majority. Beginning from a point of strength will help Jeffries fight the growing Trumpism in the Republican Party. He is a perfect choice to lead a new generation of Democrats in the House. And the Daily Wire provides the Republican narrative. Jeffries is as divisive as they come, exemplifying which direction Democrats want to take the country. As a man who labeled his political opponents as racist without a shred of evidence, the term unity is the last word that comes to mind regarding their party's so-called newest generation of leadership. Hey, don't call him divisive just because he's from New York. Come on, talk straight. Hey, he he lets you know how it is. He's not going to mess around. He'll tell you the truth. That's right. I don't know if that's how he talks. (laughs) The Oath Keeper's founder has been convicted of seditious conspiracy. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, USA Today, New York Post, and Daily Caller. On Tuesday... Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes was found guilty of seditious conspiracy and other charges related to an alleged plot to conduct violence at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Fellow Oath Keeper Kelly Meggs was also found guilty of seditious conspiracy, while three other co-defendants, Jessica Watkins, Thomas Caldwell, and Ken Harrelson, were acquitted but found guilty of other charges, including obstruction of an official proceeding. 
the Department of Justice, or the DOJ, alleges that Rhodes organized training for fellow rioters and plotted to bring ammunition to Washington. Testimony told of Rhodes' call for the Oath Keepers to defend former President Donald Trump, even if it took bloody civil war. Meanwhile, Rhodes testified that he didn't order anyone to enter the Capitol, and he thought it was, quote, stupid to go inside. Rhodes and his co-defendants were the first to face trial and be convicted of conspiracy charges, which carry a maximum of 20 years in prison, related to January 6th riots. Rhodes reportedly plans to appeal. Next month, Enrique Tarrio, leader of the far-right group The Proud Boys, and four other members will face trial on several charges related to the January 6th riots, including seditious conspiracy. We've got a political spin on this story, Adam. The Washington Examiner brings us a Republican narrative. The DOJ has unsurprisingly painted a completely distorted picture of events. If heated, hyperbolic rhetoric amounts to sedition, most of modern America would find themselves charged. Discourse surrounding revolution is deep-rooted in the country's history and culture, and cherry-picking such sentences to claim that a major conspiracy was afoot shouldn't be taken seriously. And of course, if there's a Republican narrative, it's going to be followed up by a Democratic narrative, and this one's brought to us by CNN. What happened at the U.S. Capitol went well beyond the realm of political protest gone bad, and instead was a coordinated violent attack that the Oath Keepers played a role in planning. The DOJ's case and the jury's verdict show that the government can and will hold the rioters accountable and reinforces the importance of the January 6th House Committee's work. Global News takes us to Pakistan, where four are killed after a suicide bomb targets a polio campaign. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, ABC, Al Jazeera, and Times of India. A Tariq a Taliban Pakistan suicide bomber crashed into a police escort for a polio vaccine team near the southwestern city of Quetta, Pakistan, on Wednesday. The attack killed four and wounded more than 30 others, including 15 police officers. Among the dead were three family members and a police officer who perished after the blast toppled the polio truck into a ravine and impacted a nearby car. The attack occurred just two days after a national polio vaccine drive began Monday. The TTP took credit for the attack, saying, This attack was carried out after the announcement to end ceasefire and was planned to take revenge for the death of Omar Khalid Khorasani. Our attacks will continue. Khorasani was a TTP leader killed by a car bomb in August in Afghanistan. Militants claim the vaccine drives are a Western conspiracy to sterilize children. Pakistan nearly eradicated polio in 2021 when only one case was reported, but 20 new cases have been reported this year. Gunmen killed a polio worker in March while she was returning home from an earlier vaccine drive, and in January last year, gunmen also killed a police officer guarding a team of polio vaccine handlers in the nation's northwest. Pakistan and Afghanistan are the last polio endemic countries in the world, per the World Health Organization. The Taliban takeover after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan has emboldened Taliban allies in Pakistan, despite the government agreeing to a permanent ceasefire with the TTP in May. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that sobering story. We've got a couple of narratives spinning out from this. Narrative A is provided by Atlantic Council. 
Pakistan has been left to fend for itself after the Taliban's recent takeover of Afghanistan. In order to conduct genuine negotiations with the TTP, Pakistan must do so without directly engaging the Afghan Taliban, while discreetly working to ensure the Afghan Taliban drops its support for the TTP. Unfortunately, it's up to Islamabad to walk this unfair tightrope and build diplomatic and military safeguards to ensure these heinous attacks end. And Narrative B is written by The First Post. Pakistan's current dilemma stems from its decades-old dream of establishing Muslim rule in neighboring India. The radical militant groups it nurtured in the 90s to fight a proxy war in Kashmir have turned into the Taliban and TTP groups seen today. Simply put, Islamabad is reaping the extremism it once desperately wanted to sow in its neighbors. Our next story is a study that shows that an Alzheimer's drug slows cognitive decline, but may have serious side effects. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Financial Times, Washington Post, Daily Sabah, and Economic Times. According to data presented on Tuesday, an experimental drug aimed at treating Alzheimer's developed by companies EC and Biogen slowed cognitive decline in a recent trial, but may carry the risk of serious side effects. During clinical trials of the drug Lacanamab, two patients died from brain bleeds, and the Japan-based company Isai said it's unable to rule out the possibility the drug was a contributing factor, although they deny that it directly caused the deaths. Both patients, a 65-year-old woman and a man in his 80s, were also taking blood thinners at the time. Lacanamab reduces a key marker called the amyloid beta protein of Alzheimer's disease. Patients who received the drug showed improvement in cognitive and physical functions. Ronald Peterson, director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center in Minnesota, said, All these amyloid-lowering drugs carry a risk for increased brain hemorrhage. I think the primary outcomes, the secondary outcomes, and the amyloid lowering is pretty impressive. More than 1,700 patients with early-stage Alzheimer's participated in the clinical trial. In the lecanemab group, more than 17% of patients exhibited symptoms of a brain bleed when compared to 9% in the placebo group. Other conditions, such as brain swelling, occurred in 12.6% of patients when compared to 1.7% of those in the placebo group. The Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, is scheduled to decide on accelerating the approval of the drug as early as January 2023. If approved, this could represent a win for patients of a disease that impacts 6 million Americans. Thanks, Adam, for the facts on that story. We've got a few spins. Narrative A is provided by the Alzheimer Forum. This unprecedented and historical moment in the development of Alzheimer's therapies is a big win for the Alzheimer's community, including caregivers and patients alike. The results of the trial will likely lead to the FDA granting marketing approval for the drug and begin the dawn of a new era for the treatment of this horrible disease. And a new scientist has a narrative B on this story. This victory could come at a cost for patients who take the drug, considering the lethality of potential side effects. Before taking this medication, patients have to understand the risks and must consult with their doctors and families to determine if the positives outweigh the negatives. And in our final story today, the French baguette earns a spot on UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Washington Post, BBC News, Good Morning America, and Newsbud. On Wednesday, the Paris-based United Nations heritage body UNESCO voted to add the artisanal know-how and culture of the baguette bread to its list of intangible cultural heritage, which includes 600 traditions that span more than 130 countries. French President Macron described the baguette as 250 grams of magic and perfection. More than 6 billion are produced each year in French bakeries and have been in decline, especially in rural areas, in recent years. The origin of the baguette remains unknown, but it has been suggested that Napoleon ordered the bread for soldiers because it was easy to carry. Some credit the shape to an Austrian baker from the 1830s. UN Cultural Agency chief and former French cultural minister Audrey Azoulay said, It is important that these craft, knowledge, and social practices can continue to exist in the future. Following the announcement, the French government now plans to designate an artisanal baguette day to be dubbed Open Bakehouse Day. A Paris resident suggested, It's very easy to get a bad baguette in France. It's the traditional baguette from the traditional bakery that's in danger. Though the ingredients are simple, the baking process sets the bread apart from others. Baguette dough must rest for 15 to 20 hours at between 4 and 6 degrees Celsius, as designated by the French Baker's Confederation. Melissa, thank you for rolling out the dough of those facts for that story. We've got a couple narratives here. The first is Narrative A, and it's provided by Wanderlush. Food culture is part of humanity. It's not just about foods we eat, but about why we eat food, how we prepare it and who we share our cuisine with. Food connects us to history and allows people to connect across societies. It is important to protect these cultural foods to safeguard our traditions and continue to share in our shared history. The baguette is a great example. And narrative B comes from the sixth tone. There are significant flaws in the UNESCO application and selection process for the intangible cultural heritage list. For example, the process has largely excluded Chinese cuisine from the recognition, which is focused on unique historical know-how and skills. To have a more effective selection process, UNESCO must stop treating the process as a Western-centric publicity stunt and focus on humanity's collective culinary legacy. I, Adam, I thought the controversy around this was going to be that uh, Napoleon soldiers, because those baguettes were so easy to grab, they would pull them out of their rifle container and uh, and uh, and that would go poorly at the front line when they thought that was their rifle. Well, you're actually close there. Uh, historically, when they, they did carry those baguettes to the front, but by the time they got there, they got so hard and stale that they could use them as bayonets. They'd attach them to the front of their uh, rifles and then they would rush the, the Russian army with uh, their their French baguette bayonet. <laughs> yeah, okay. I like that. Yeah, because they said, what are we going to do with all these day-olds? Yes, and then they would take croissants and they would throw those like boomerangs. Oh, I thought you were going to say grenade. No, they throw them like boomerangs and then when they got next to the victim, the, the flakiness of the baguette would fly off and it would get in their eyes. It would distract them. And then that's when they would rush with the French baguette bayonet. Oh, gotcha. A little distract and destroy. Yeah, apparently they kept all of this information quiet because it was on a need-to-know basis. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, December 1st, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. 
For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Au revoir!